You are now listening to The Sound of Sanity, Beyond the Wardrobe Edition. This is a special series of episodes wherein Nathan and Ben journey through the enchanted world of children's Children's fantasy literature. What will this journey bring? You'll have to come with us to find out. Hello and welcome to what is possibly, but I hope not, the last of our children's fantasy literature reviews here on Sound of Sanity, beyond going beyond the wardrobe. Now, we've barely gotten past the lamppost. Lamppost, that's what I was looking for. All right. Lost that word. There's so much more in the land beyond the wardrobe to explore. Maybe we'll even get old Jake to come with us when he comes back, which should be within the next week or two. The crick don't rise and all that kind of thing. But this is at least the last of the original Nathan Ben set. There there were some other books we had talked about doing and maybe even said, but we didn't get to them. We had a pastor's conference and other things that came up. And I think we did ended up ultimately doing less weeks than we had originally mm-hmm. intended. Yeah. We also, Ben started Redwall, and he hates it and thinks everyone who hey. likes it is, is stupid, I think you were saying. Uh, like, I asked you not to quote me on this podcast. I'm sorry. That wasn't a direct quote. I think jackass was the word. Yeah, something like that. Brian Jackass, you were calling the author? Right, right, right. No. No. It, just, it wasn't really doing it for you, but you didn't get that far before we decided to... Pull the plug on that one. Pull the plug on that one. Yep. A Redwall series. Read them as a boy. Loved them. Would totally give them to my kids. And I probably would enjoy the sequels more than the first one. Reading the first one after 20-something years of not reading it. Yeah, I mean, even at the time, I think the first one was not my favorite. I think I started somewhere in the early middle of the series. Uh Really enjoyed some of those books. And then the first one felt a little bit more like a generic sort of hero quest with, uh-huh. with some sort of lame fetch quest side things and it's, it, it wasn't the best I, I would not even say that matthias was the best of his mouse chosen ones right that would do that honor goes to martin the warrior who appeared in some martin Ma- the warrior martin the warrior which was really great and also moss flower which i remember quite fondly i think it was moss flower no i cannot remember moss flower i don't think had martin yeah, Moss, Moss Flower was the prequel. Moss Flower is like how Martin came to Redwall and kind oh, of became it? their icon. Man, he, it's it's really been too long. I I did reread these books. I reread these books and love those books. So there, that's just that's your dose of Redwall. I, I remember there's an evil cat queen. I remember her in Moss Flower. I think and Martin defeats her and she drowns, and it's very sad. I think Martin just like is like I am here and powerful, and she's like ah, and she backs up and falls into the water, and then she's a cat. So. Not very good at swimming. Not very good at swimming. Yep. But Martin the Warrior, I think, was the first book that I read. A friend at school gave it to me. Anyway, Redwall is great, but we come not with tidings of Redwall today. We come to discuss a book that neither one of us had read, Peter Beagle's The Last Unicorn. Yeah. With a name like Peter Beagle, you'd think he'd be writing about The Last Dog, huh? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But he wrote about unicorns. He did. Well, yeah, 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 he did. That's not a misnomer. He he wrote about one unicorn in particular. 
Althea, the unicorn. Almathea. Almathea. You're, er, why do I want to say? You're almost certainly right. Amalthea. Amalthea. Oh, yes, that was a right. hard one. Yep. Yep. Also, the unicorn, as she's called, also known as the Lady Amalthea. But there are some other unicorns that appear in this book. Spo- this is a spoiler, spoiler podcast, right? Yeah, I know. It's hard to talk about this book without spoilers. Maybe we'll talk for a few more minutes without spoilers. Yep. As far as baggage goes, did you bring any to this book? Nope. Except that I guess I knew it was a children's film that I never saw. Yes, I was vaguely aware. Here, I feel naked without the... I've been looking for it on the soundboard here. So let's talk about our baggage. I was familiar with the fact that there was a children's film. I don't really remember it even being a thing, though. Like, around, I don't know that I saw, like, even saw the VHS, you know, cover in in my life. I, I think when I became a Christopher Lee fan of his Dracula pictures and stuff like that, I was vaguely interested because Christopher Lee does uh, one of the voices. I believe Jeff Bridges plays... What's his face? The wizard. It's hmm. kind of an interesting cast. That sounds interesting. And it, Mia Farrow is the unicorn. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and Christopher Lee, of course, plays the evil King Haggard. King Haggard. So sounds like a stacked cast. It sounds like the voice work is quite good. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that the animation is a little bit well designed, but not well animated. This mm-hmm. the cheapo Rankin and Bass animation of uh-huh. the type that people might be familiar with from things like The Hobbit. Or that Return of the King adaptation, those right. wonderful things. I, I watched. I watched a couple of clips of Last Unicorn. I think it looks pretty good. Yeah, I mean, would you would you want to watch it? I'm not suggesting that we do it on the podcast, I, but would you I, be tempted? I wouldn't, but that's because I don't. I don't feel the need to take in this story through another form. I think it would just depress me. Yes, I think this was the right dose of this story, and this was the right medium for this story. I don't. Yeah. Really, under know how you would translate this into the medium of film in a way that would preserve what's special about it. But in any case, yeah, I didn't bring any baggage to this either. I was vaguely aware of it as a thing. I'm surprised that no one ever told me to read this or that it didn't come up. Yeah, it's odd. I mean, it is, I can sort of understand why, because it's not really a children's book. I mean, it might end up in that section and it might be written at about their comprehension level, just in terms of the vocabulary but in terms of the concepts, the ideas, concepts the and themes, ideas, and not at all the, what it's dealing with and the, the meta textual quality of it all. It's not, not in the slightest, not really a children's book. So, but I'm a little bit surprised I didn't encounter it as a teenager or I'm surprised I've made it to the age that I have without encountering this book. All right. Well, I think you have some much needed context on this work and Mr. Beagles. So let's go into that. Ah, he is, Peter Beagle is still alive. He was born in 1939. He's American. Taint British, of, is of Jewish extraction. No surprise, I guess, with a main character wizard named Schmendrick. Mm-hmm. And he's written quite a few books. He got, he's gotten the World Fantasy Award for Life Achievement. And he was named a, a Damon Knight Memorial Grandmaster. by the uh, Science Fiction Fantasy Writers Association. And the short story that's kind of the sequel to The Last Unicorn, which I also read, it's called Two Hearts. It won the uh, Hugo Award and the Nebula Award, which are the two big sci-fi fantasy awards that you can win. So So, was was that kind of like one of those awards? Martin Scorsese's done a lot of 
movies like Raging Bull that we probably should have given the award to, but now he's doing The Departed. It's not that great, but we need an, an excuse to finally to honor, honor him? this guy. I don't know enough to know that. Uh, my impression would be, no, people just thought it was really people great. People just love two arts. Okay. Just, they just loved it. I read it. It is a really good story. Maybe we can talk about that a little later. It reminded me of Gene Wolfe somewhat. Very different kind of, well. I will say that The Last Unicorn reminded me a little bit of Gene yes. Wolfe in certain ways. Yes, yes. Yeah, likewise. Two Hearts is even more so because it's a first-person perspective of a little of a nine-year-old girl. So, yeah. So this gentleman is still alive. Last Unicorn was his second novel. And uh, the first one's A Fine and Private Place, which he wrote in 1960. So there's an eight-year gap from that to The Last Unicorn. Which is a book that's barely in print. You don't really see it, but a lot of some people swear by it. I know that's Neil Gaiman's favorite. Which one is? A Fine and Private Private Place. Place? I would read more Peter Beagle. Yeah. I would read more of his stuff. He's, I think he's, well, I think he's probably a brilliant writer, actually. Line by line, sentence by sentence, we have not read anyone better. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, there's no one who has his gift for description and evocative writing Mm -hmm. that we've read, or even poetry insofar as prose is poetic. Yeah. So, let's see. What else could I tell you? He was raised in the Bronx in New York. He has family members who are, um, it says three, this is from Wikipedia, three of his uncles were noted painters, Moses, Raphael, and Isaac Sawyer. I've never heard of the Sawyer brothers, but they're all noted painters. So, art and stuff runs in his family. It is interesting that Peter Beagle, he's responsible for the screenplay for Another animated kids movie that I have never seen. I think you have, Nathan. I have, yeah. It's the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings animated movie from 1978. And, well, here, let me read what Beagle himself said about that. If I can find, yeah, here's this interview. I found an interview, which was kind of fun. What did he say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where do we go? Hold on. Yeah. So, so the interviewer asks, were you happy with the animated version of Lord of the Rings and or The Last Unicorn? I thought that the animated Lord of the Rings was, in an artistic sense, a disaster. I felt the screenplay was extremely good, and I was very proud of having a chance to work with actors like John Hurt and Peter Woodthorpe and William Squires, but I don't think it's much of a movie. I think it might have stood a chance if the second film was made the way we always planned, but as a single movie, I think it's incoherent. A lot of parts got cut up or shoveled and jumbled together with no discernible pattern or rhythm, and yet it has survived, and I've been told by a fair number of people that they like it better than the Jackson film. I can't imagine saying that or feeling like that myself, but there you are. As for The Last Unicorn, the animated movie, by comparison, it is magnificent. At least it (laughs) follows the story as much as we could. Some parts of it are better than others. So that's Beagle. I kind of, I like him listening to him in an interview. He's pretty unassuming. Yeah, I like that. All that stuff. And he's, his, uh, his perception of his own work is correct, by the way. The Lord of the Rings movie is... You can tell that it probably did have a good script. Like it's mm-hmm. a fairly decent distillation of Tolkien, but it does feel incoherent and short mm-hmm. and weird and abbreviated. And yeah, there are things about it where you're like, man, I, this is the Tolkien I wanted. I wish they would have had the money and the time and the producer who believed in it. And I mean, just for example, one one thing that's always I know we rag on Jackson a lot in our podcast, but one thing that's always bothered me about Peter Jackson is that his conception of the ring wraiths are so down to earth. Mm-hmm. There's some, There's nothing very ethereal or kind of, like he tries to make them creepy and you'd think as a horror director that he'd do a good job, but his conception of what's creepy about them is just not 
what I imagined from the book. Like, it's not creepy. It's just like there are these guys in chain mail and hoods that are going to kill you with a sword. Like that's what's mm-hmm. scary about them in Jackson. In um, in the animated version, you have much more what I remember from the book, kind of this dark, creeping dread, yeah. these spectral writers that are on the horizon that are always kind of passing by in the distance that you have to hide from. And um, yeah. And, it, and even there, it falls short. Like they didn't have the time or the money and the conception of mm-hmm. it's kind of weird. But it's like, I think maybe these guys understood Tolkien, the actual Tolkien and his book a little bit better. They just didn't, yeah. didn't have the resources to really do it correctly. Yeah, I found myself for the first time ever going and watching a couple of clips from that animated movie today just because I was I read that he worked on the script. And I was like, oh, this is, I like the design of this in a lot of places. Yeah. Anyway, so so Beagle is unassuming. He said that he got into fantasy by reading Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. Kenneth Graham actually would be the other contender for the best writer line by line, and you, maybe Graham would win. Agreed. But you could actually have a discussion about it. Yeah. It's not clear right away, at least, to me. And Beagle says later in this interview that he doesn't read a lot of fantasy. When he does, it tends to be the older guys. I like that he likes Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Last Unicorn is very meta, like we'll talk about. But it doesn't feel like it's spitting on Tolkien or older fantasy. It doesn't feel like, I, hey, I have contempt for what's gone before and I'm rewriting it in a right. really Pomo way because it stinks. Actually, Gaiman is more prey to that kind of thing at times. Neil Gaiman. Well, I was going to say in her own way, it, she doesn't at all, she's not worthy of the bad judgments that you just hypothesized. But Diana Wynne-Jones in her way is a little bit more mm-hmm. playful. Than Definitely. He is. Like he's... He wants his book to have a coherence here and yeah. to have it, – it, it does work as its own fairy tale. It's mm-hmm. not just commentary. It's not just sort of right. doing calisthenics with the ideas. Right. It's, it has to work as its own thing. Yeah, I, that's true. But Diana Wynne-Jones too, you don't feel like she actually dislikes Tolkien. Yeah. Just that she's going to play with it. Right. Maybe what I said about Gaiman is unfair. I actually had one very specific story in mind that really grossed me out where he vented his hatred of Narnia mm-hmm. in a short story. It was gross. Never fear, never look, never bother even looking for that. It's not even worth your time, my dear listener, in my opinion. But so that's Peter Beagle. He's still around. He had uh, this lawsuit. Um, when was this? He, he had this, this lawsuit with his manager in 2015 where a guy who was managing, because he's, he's, like we said, he's dipped into film in terms of screenplay writing, he's dipped into some other things, too. Wrote for a pretty famous Star Trek episode called Sarek. About- I, I was reading about that. I've never seen it. I'm not a Trekkie. Yeah, I'm not really a Trekkie either, at least not that era of Trek. Yeah. And, but I know that's a very well-regarded episode. episode. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, he successfully sued this guy for his manager for, like, financial elder abuse fraud and breach of fiduciary duty and got 325000 All right. So, anyway... And he got back the rights to his, the intellectual property rights to some of his works. So good for him. It's cool that he's still around. And he's written a lot of stuff. As I look over his book list, I'm like, I did not realize that this guy was just around writing lots of books. I have never heard about him. I've heard about The Last Unicorn. I knew it existed, like I said. I don't know about any of these other books. And there's a bunch of them. There's collections of short fiction. There's a lot of nonfiction. I just don't. There's various screenplays. Um... Anyway, but this guy has, has won, like, all the big awards that you can win. I mean, Mythopoeic Fantasy Award, Locus Award, all these things. It's, it, he's, he's very well regarded. Yeah. 
Yeah, I didn't know either. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to tell you his name before yeah. doing this thing. I knew the last unicorn was as a title. Yeah. But I don't know anything else, or should we get into this? I think we can get into it. All right. Well, Ben, what is your assessment of The Last Unicorn? Maybe sum it up in a couple sentences, and then we'll go on to the non-spo. I think this is going to be hard. It is going to be hard to talk out. I've been wondering what I would say. Mm, In a couple sentences, huh? Well, it is a very lyrical, meta-style, fable, fairy tale kind of a book set in a high fantasy world with very blurry sorts of boundaries. Mm -hmm. This is not a world like, I'm already failing. That was two sentences, and right. I haven't even got anywhere yet, so I'm sorry. That's, okay, all that I just said is true, and it's more about art and what it means to be human. It's about love and death and all that stuff, too. I, yeah, it's going to be impossible to have this conversation without just having this conversation, so yeah, I, I would recommend this book. I, I really liked this book. That's, yeah. that's my short, <laughs> short review, I think. <laughs> All right, now for a more productive conversation. Oh, we should say here, I just, I saw this in the Wikipedia page and I pulled up this old Locust poll. It's the best all-time fantasy novel. So I think this is 1987 poll. Where did this come from? Hold on. Yeah, yeah. So this Locust poll of readers of this fantasy sci-fi magazine called Locust. Number one, will not surprise anyone, it is... No, the number one greatest fantasy novel of all time. The Lord to of the Rings. There you go. And the number two should will probably also not surprise anyone. The Last Unicorn. Uh, no, oh. The Hobbit. The Hobbit. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that was like a <laughs> At least, I don't know. The number three is A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin. A okay. book that we, yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe we said, we'll talk about hey, that Hey, maybe someday. we should have done that. Yeah. Maybe we will. Number four is The Shadow of the Torturer by Gene Wolfe which is we both read and is kind of amazing, but which we can't really recommend to anyone. That um, sums it up. Yeah. <laughs> That's the short yeah, review of that one. That is the short review of that very weird book. And then number five is The Last Unicorn. So it's high up there. It yeah. beats out The Once and Future King by T.H. White, which I know won't make Nathan sad. It won't. It even beats out Nine Princes in Amber by Roger Zelazny, which, d- dear listener, do you have any affection for that book? Who still reads that book? I happen to have read it when I was like a teenager. Anyway, you, what, you go to half price books or something like that. I bet you'll find a copy of that book that no one's reading because ah. Zelazny's one of those guys where there'll be like 19 of his books at a used bookstore. Right. All right. Well, okay. I guess I guess we're done with that. But yep. here we go. The Last Unicorn itself. The Last Unicorn itself. So Once in Future King is actually, if people have read that, an interesting comparison point because Once in Future King actually tries to do something very similar. Have you read that book? I have. I mean, it's been a long time. I was a young teenager. Well, I've read it more recently and as an adult. And I would say, in its way, it wants to do kind of the same thing that this book does, which is it wants to take an old form and do it well, but also add a uh, existential sort of self-reflective quality, for lack of mm-hmm. better words. And it wants to be sort of lyrical and, again, self-reflective Right. It wants to do the thing and also comment on the thing mm-hmm. and also make you feel wistful and sad about the thing and about your relationship with the thing. And mm-hmm. but also make you feel wistful and sad about the parameters of the thing, like the story itself. Yeah. So it, it, it's very meta. 
And I hate Once and Future King. Maybe it's just because it's messing with my beloved King Arthur, the Once and Future King himself. Yeah. But I also feel like it's liberal and it's cheap and it's mm-hmm. like eh, King Arthur really didn't like war because he knew that you shouldn't like when he felt bad that he had to kill. All, and it's just like sort of putting all this stuff through a annoying modern lens. Mm-hmm. Where you're like, you know what? I don't think the real King Arthur. I mean, I know. All right. Listener, I understand there was no real King Arthur, or if there was, he was some dude that wasn't like the one in the book. It's Clive but, Owen. Yeah, Clive <laughs> Owen. Right. If there was, it was Clive Owen. But having said that, the real King Arthur didn't feel bad about sending his knights off to do battle. Didn't feel bad about bodies after a battle. Like, right. It just not a thing. Right. People understood. Kings fight. Kings have war. In fact, they gloried in it. Maybe not exactly like those fake chivalry books written in the 1500s and stuff, but something more like that than like us. Mm-hmm. So I just feel like Once the Future King takes everything that is magical and flattens it into kind of a postmodern pastiche where none of the magic's actually left by the end. This book, I would say, by, point of, by way of comparison, does all those things and is much more successful. Like it works as a, it works as a fairy tale. Right. It, it does feel magic. It, yeah. Magical. It works as you follow these characters from A to B to C and you like where they end up and it tells a complete story. But it also reflects on itself and it also does other things. And it's also, like you said, about our relationship with death and art <laughs> and stuff like that. It, yeah, it really is. If that sounds highfalutin. No more highfalutin than the book is. Yeah, it's not. And I don't think the book is not like rubbing your nose in it. It really is. It's a pretty playful book. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty sad. And both of those qualities go a long way. I mean, it, the guy wants you to buy into his characters and the story they're actually having, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not like they just exist so that he can talk in the abstract about fantasy. They're on a fantasy adventure, and they do know it. <laughs> right. But in a way that's pretty charming. Yeah, I don't know. I did really like this book. I also found myself resisting it. Mm-hmm. It reminded me very much of the same kind of melancholy I used to feel when as a kid. I guess this is baggage sort of-ish. But as a kid, when I uh, would read Tolkien, mm-hmm. read Lord of the Rings, I loved reading Lord of the Rings, and I always looked forward in this odd way to the like two weeks after I finished Lord of the Rings, because I would be in this wistful, melancholy mood as a kid, mm-hmm. just thinking about how I wished Middle Earth were real, and I was sad that all my friends died, and I would think about how we were all going to die, and I wish I'd bring them, wish that... They, they could all still be alive, and then I'd feel sad that I couldn't actually meet them, but they weren't real. So I would really go down my own navel mm-hmm. in a way that I'm not, not a fan of that. don't think that was very good for me. Not that it's all bad. I'm not opposed to feeling sad after a book ends. That's a sign of a good book or a good movie sometimes. But there is something about the way Tolkien wants to romanticize the past and the land of fairy, and Beagle really pulls hard on that mm. same thing and he's good at it. He's really good at it. And I I was preparing a sermon on Saturday when I finished this book and I was like, I think that was like that took that that book tried to take a lot of emotional energy mm. from me and I'm having to fight pretty hard to resist it. I wish I'd waited till after I had given my sermon to finish reading this book. Right. Cause it kind of it pulls a lot from you. And if you maybe you're the kind of person who doesn't really get into Tolkien, but if you get into him at all, he pulls like he really pulls you into this world. 
And Beagle's going to do that in a much more compact, short, poetic way. This book, is it even 200 pages? I don't know. It is short. Yeah. It's not an epic fantasy, but it's, it's a drawing from the epic fantasy well to create mm-hmm. its fairy tale world. I have more thoughts, but... Well, I agree. I agree with everything. I think for the boy version of Ben that you were describing, this book might have been deadly. I understand exactly yeah. why you wouldn't have liked finishing this book a Saturday where you had to prepare a sermon. Uh-huh. I myself did not have to prepare a sermon, which I think helped. I bet it did. <laughs> Jake's been on sabbatical. We've been trading off preaching at Church of the King, just so people know. So just through luck of the draw, that's where Ben was at. Mm. I think it would have made a difference to my perception of this book. So I sympathize with everything that you're saying. At the same time, and, and, and I understand the dangers of a book like this. At the same time, I think this book's kind of a masterpiece. I mean, I kind of love it. I think it casts a stronger spell than anything I've read in a long time, I think, mm-hmm. pro- probably than most of the things we've done. Yeah. And I've enjoyed every, uh, everything except for one or two of the things that we've done. Mm-hmm. But in many ways, this one, this book, this spoke to me more than most of them, I'd say. Yeah. It is really quite beautiful and quite sad and does, it has those little moments of, oh, what's the word? Frison, <laughs> you know that word, frison. Mm, uh, maybe you've used it before. I can't remember. Uh, I've, I don't know that I've ever used it in my life, but I just thought of it. It's a sudden strong feeling of excitement or fear. I just pulled it up. It's like the tingling on that you get, like like your skin tingles or something with like a feeling of, it's a feeling I used to get as a kid when I read things like Lord of the Rings, where it's just like that moment was great or that piece of description was great or that like, oh, I'm just suddenly really excited. Like I'm having an artistic moment. I am one with the muses, not that I'm the writer, but it's like, I'm really entering into the flow of this. That happens to me r- more rarely these days. But this mm-hmm. book had a couple of moments like that. I was just like, man, that is so good, what he just did. Right. The little bit of insight that it took to just do that. I mean, yeah. spoiler alert, King Haggard's death. It has some sentence about he smiles as the castle collapses on him. They, they thought they heard him laugh. They thought they heard him laugh. And then it says something like... N- nothing ever much surprised King Haggard. Nothing ever much surprised King Haggard. I actually just got a <laughs> chill right now remembering that. I think that's such a brilliant death for such a brilliant character it, yeah. um, and he is this cynical used up old sort of guy that withers everything he touches withers basically. everything he touches it's in his name king haggard right he is just a a sucker of life and he's actually gathered all the unicorns because that's the only way he can get any thrill is not, not even from enjoying the unicorns but just from Having them captured and imprisoned. Yeah. So he's a recognizable person that we've all met, but he's put in this fairy tale context. And then to have him kind of chuckling at his own death because, oh, of course, this is how I would die. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and to sit in then the sentence, the perfect little sentence, nothing much ever surprised King Haggard. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's just a great, you, you, you couldn't do a better th- thing than that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and this yeah. book had a handful of moments like that that I thought were really special. Does it all... I would not give this book to everybody. I would not give it to the wrong person. Like I, I'm not really disagreeing with anything that you just said about it, understand. Well, uh, I think... Sorry to interrupt your sentence, but I just... Here's what I... You can help me work through this, Nathan. Yeah. Here's what I was... What I'm thinking is, what does this book want me to cry at? Right. Because it did make me want to cry. And I mistrusted it. I was like, no, what am I crying at? This is just the humanist existentialist. Sorry, listener. 
But it is. It is about... This is a really hard book to talk about. It is a hard book to talk about. It's a fantasy adventure, but that, of course, that's not really what it is. I mean, it is that, but it does have adventure. It mm. does have some action, even. Yeah. But it's more of, like, this comical, weird, interesting book about creating your own fate. Mm-hmm. I think that's the closest. And it's about how the world is full of extreme poetry and beauty, but it's always beyond us and it transcends us and, it, and we can't really have it. And if we did have it, we would destroy what makes us beautiful and special, which is that we're mortal and we have limits. And I've seen this kind of theme in several books that are very effective and affecting. I've seen Neil Gaiman do it in his comic book series, The Sandman. Mm. I don't recommend because it's really dark and really gross and really perverse. But brilliant a lot of the time. I've seen Neil Gaiman do it explicitly. I've seen actually Ursula Le Guin do it in a book I really was a big fan of at the time. That's it's it's part of the story of the Aeneid, but it's told from the perspective of the girl that Aeneas marries. What's her name? Oh, Latria. Uh, yeah, is that her name? That's not right. I don't know. But it, but she's the Roman girl that he marries at the end. She has no like lines. I don't think in the original poem. So Le Guin writes this novel. And I really like it. And that, that's what the novel is about. Right. And so I've read authors do this very meta thing that's very effective and very pagan, very godless, and very much like, yeah, we all own that there's a spark of the divine that makes life beautiful and worth living, but we also own that it's meaningless because we're all going to die and we're all mortal. But, we're, but we can't accept either one of those by themselves, and we're not going to worship God, so we're going to put those together in a really poetic way that makes you feel like you remember your own death, you remember what it's like to love, you remember the beauty that you've seen in your life that seemed to make it worth living, and we're going to leave you with the feeling, more or less, that's all you have, and we're going to make you cry. And we're going to try to give you some, we're going to leave you with some proportion of hope and sadness, more sadness and more hope, depending on the author and the bent. So that's my way of summarizing what these really talented artists do and I enjoy it on the one hand, and I'm like, I don't want that on the other hand. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I think I would not want to just read books like this. I think that, and I would not want the wrong person to read this book at all. And I would not want to read this book in the wrong frame of mind. I mean, I, I'll give it lots of caveats. At the same time, I would say, I'm not sure that I would go so far as to say I wouldn't want this book to be written. Because I think, no, like it or lump it, that feeling of there being a beautiful thing that's outside of our ability to grasp is a part of the human experience. And yes, it ultimately, we ultimately do grasp it through Christ, but I don't necessarily need every book to say that. I know that's not what you're saying at all. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm just like, it's like, could, can I read, can there be one good book about suicide? Can there be one good book about this or that thing? Normally, like all the things you just mentioned, like I think I would find them annoying. I think what Neil Gaiman does in Sandman and Sandman is wildly irresponsible and done in such a gross way Mm -hmm. with so many actively perverse things. Right. There's lots of ways. I'm kind of saying like, actually, C.S. Lewis does this kind of thing all the time. And I Mm -hmm. hate it when he does it. I hate, I have people that know my, know me and know my podcast will know my visceral feeling of disgust for his book that does Mm. exactly this which Mm -hmm. is till we have faces Mm -hmm. 
So I, I think I get what you're saying. Yeah, and, uh, and I'm not really trying to lump it all together as though it's the same thing. I'm just talking about the genus. Yeah. This can be a different species. Yeah, this is the kind of the book that the Gospel Coalition would say. It captures the feeling oh, that we have of please. the transcendent and of there being something behind our grasp, and ultimately yeah. it's found in Jesus, but Peter Beagle can't have known that. But, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I don't want to dignify it by saying he was preaching the gospel to us just like without yeah, knowing it just right. like i don't want to dignify c.s lewis until we have faces by saying he was preaching the gospel by going to straight paganism right i do think as a 200 page hit of that feeling mm-hmm. this is done in a smart way and right. in a, it, i thought it was the right level it, it didn't actually go into total disgusting self-annihilation like it so did many not. of those books it did. did it didn't it no, actually no. wanted schmendrake and molly to have a life beyond the unicorn. Um, Two Hearts, it sounds like, maybe reverses this, but at least the way that this book leaves off, it sounds like it wants Prince Lear to have a life beyond the unicorn. I wouldn't say Two Hearts reverses it. Two Hearts is a pretty successful story, maybe even a really great story. I mean, Two Hearts Hearts is a very different tone and a different prose style because it's first person from the perspective of a nine-year-old girl. So it has a much more grounded and reality feeling like, yeah, the previous book was this fable-like poetic journey through this land, but I'm a nine-year-old girl and I live here. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more hard, concrete details about my life and how I live it. Right. And uh, he makes it work pretty well. That's cool. Well, I will say that makes me think of what... The other thing about this book is I really unabashedly love all the stuff that doesn't have to do with the thing we're talking... Like, yeah. just the characters, yeah. the dialogue, Schmendrake yeah. and Molly Grew and the yeah. band... the. I don't know how many silly bandits in forests I've seen. Neil Gaiman <laughs> does this kind of thing in Stardust in a pretty gay way, oh, literally. Yeah. Right. I mean, like it, you see it in Tangled. A trope now is the spoof of the guys who think that they're Robin Hood's merry men, <laughs> but are actually idiots. Right. But this book does it really well. I love it does the. It really well. There's an early encounter with a circus witch that's about the best version of that kind of thing. You could ask for... Um, this book has some great monsters. It has a harpy. It has this yeah. Red Bull thing. Well, the way it the all... The is awesome. I mean, it's just really the kind of fairy tale conceits that I love. Like, in, like, there's this witch that captures normal creatures and then creates illusions that make them look like they're special creatures, magical right. creatures. She captures a unicorn, but she doesn't recognize it as a unicorn. She thinks that it's just a very nice horse or whatever. And then she uses her magic to make people see it. No, she does know it's a unicorn. Wait, did I misread? Or did you? Yeah, well. She knows it's a unicorn, but she knows that other people will only see it as a white mare. Yes, that's right. So, so she enchants it she so still has to use it her will look like a yeah. unicorn, even though it really is. I love that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and she's keeping a harpy. That's the other real magical creature it's that a, she's keeping. And the harpy is going to get out and kill them right. all. Which because is, the harpy is super powerful and she's barely holding it. Which is wonderful. I mean, I love that. that I love that kind of thing. I love oh, the fact that when you meet the harpy and you're like, well, it's going to get out and kill this witch. And then it does. And it's like the kind of fairy tale inevitability that feels great. King Haggard and Prince Lear are, they're, they're wonderful are wonderfully done. The, villi- the, the sort of townsfolk, the people that they meet. Yeah. There's a really funny conversation with a skeleton, a skull that has to guard that a door. That was a great conversation. It's like moment to moment. It actually reminds me of what I did like about Sandman back in the day and what I love about Gene Wolfe. What I love about a lot of these guys when they're not being perverse is when they just have great 
fairy tale moments that yeah. have some real insight into human nature and also combine it with a magical conceit that enhances or throws that human nature into relief in a fun way. So there's just a lot of there's just a lot of stuff like mm. that I really, really like. It's I would almost go so far. I don't know that I'd quite say that. It's almost like the unicorn and her kind of transcendent, quasi immortal, like t- you to love something is to lose it kind of like that kind of stuff is almost the the work that I'm doing to get the other the stuff that I actually like mm-hmm. from this book. But at the same time, I didn't feel like it so grossly offended me with the kind of existential whatever of it all mm-hmm. that that I felt off put like I kind of expected to. It was always teetering on the brink of being like, ah, is this book asking too much or is it too nihilistic or is it too this or too that? I thought he walked a pretty. Yeah. For me, at least walked a, a pretty fine line of never quite falling into the abyss of that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. He did the best job I've ever seen a pagan author do. Yeah. And that's quite good. I definitely like it. Tales of Unrequited Love. And there's a lot of romantic tales of doom in the fairy tales and the pagan tales that authors like this draw on. And Peter Beagle draws on that for the love between Prince Lear and the unicorn when she's in human form. It's, it ends as an unrequited love story. And Peter Beagle does about as responsible a job with that kind of thing as you can do, because he's going to end by saying that Molly grew this character who's like a middle-aged, bitter lady, just disappointed, spent all of her best days, but is experiencing kind of a second life following the unicorn and going on this quest. She and Smendrick are basically falling in love in a pretty sweet way. The, as the book ends... And they go on their way after having said goodbye to the unicorn. It says, Molly, something like, Molly grew laughed, and she was more beautiful than any unicorn. And so Peter Beagle's going to emphasize that kind of thing. That's sweet. He's going to be like, nah, actually, Schmendrick and Molly have a better deal. He's going to play with all of these tensions. Uh, I, I, don't. I liked the, some of the ways that he wasn't sentimental. Yes. Like the fact that when the unicorn visits them all in their dreams to kind yeah. of say goodbye. Mm-hmm. The one person who she doesn't have any words for are Prince Lear. And in some ways, that's the most romantic thing. That's right. But in other ways, that's really frustrating for him. And she does have mm-hmm. words for the other two. Yeah. Um, I just thought he handled, just agreeing with you, I guess, like he handled that all that stuff deftly. It was about, if you're going to do this, it was about the most responsible way you could do it. Yeah. Um, and at least in this book, this was the thing that I thought maybe two hearts got rid of that I liked in this book Mm. was in this book, the implication is that they've sent his new wife to Prince Lee that they've said, like they found a real woman on the road who needs help. And earlier in the book, Schmendrake has said, don't worry, Prince Lear, you're going to settle down get married. Like it's not clear. I will say, yeah, it's not clear to hearts that he ever did get married. I don't think he has any kids. There is a, a woman that he loves but in Two Hearts, he's an old man who's almost forgotten who he is. Okay. He's an old king and a very good king and a, still a heroic king. And, man, I guess I can just spoil everything that Two Hearts does if sure. you want. Yeah. Okay. Just warning. If you're interested in this, actually, I wouldn't listen to this part because I, I don't think I'd like knowing Two Hearts before I read The Last Unicorn. So here you go. Two Hearts. There's a griffin in the woods near this little girl's village. She's part of the kingdom of King Lear. She doesn't know his name is Lear. All they know is that he is the king. Right. And this griffin has been eating children from the village. It's this really terrifying, awful beast, kind of like the harpy from The Last Unicorn. So she goes to King Lear's castle. 
And on the way, she meets Schmendrick and Molly, who are journeying. And they are about the same age as you last met them. But they say it's... But Molly lets you know it's actually been a long time since they've seen King Lear. So they go back and they find that he is old and feeble, or kind of feeble, and he is... They make him remember who he is by talking about the unicorn. The people in his castle love him, but their love, as Mendrick says, is killing him because he can't go be a hero. He can't be the person he needs to be. He's just comfortable and taken care of. But he does remember who he is, and he's a really fun, really cool old warrior king character. And they go off to fight the griffin, and he's like, you're not allowed to help me. Promise you won't help me. And there's a pretty cool battle that he has, and the griffin has two hearts. It has a lion heart and a horse heart, and you have to get both or it'll kill you. So he gets one heart, and it falls to the ground, and he's about to get the other, but it was just playing dead, and it mortally wounds him, kills the little girl's dog, Schmendrick. So it's all very sad. It's like the king is going off to die, and everyone knows right. it. And, and then Schmendrick summons the unicorn, basically, and she finishes off the griffin, and it's really cool. It sounds like it could be lame, but it's really cool. And King Lear gets one happy look at her before he dies. He's, like, been disemboweled, basically, by the griffin. Right. And she doesn't bring him back to life. Instead, she brings the little girl's dog back to life. And then she leaves. And then Schmendrick and Molly leave, but Molly gives the little girl a special signal that she can use to call them someday so they can see each other again. It's pretty sweet. It's pretty affecting. It's pretty touching. It's pretty sad. Yeah. It's pretty... It it brings back some of the same feelings of the first book, but through different means. It's very Gene Wolfe in the way that it uh, does the first-person perspective and kind of the way the little girl perceives things and knows things. He's actually not as good as Gene Wolfe at that. Gene Wolfe is kind of amazing at that sort of thing. It would be hard for anyone to be as good as Gene Wolfe is at that. uh, Gene Wolfe is brilliant about the way that he gives you information about the character and what they understand or don't understand through his writing. It's crazy. But it was a very Gene Wolfe style story even the action and the movement and the sadness is the kind of thing that wolf would evoke and that's cool yeah um and so two hearts ends like that and you feel really sad for king lear but you also feel like he didn't spend his life wasting away in sadness he's actually a good guy he's like you'd want him for a father or grandfather you'd want him to be your king and he's like oh little girl i'm sorry about the griffin of course i'm gonna come and kill him for you you're an important subject of mine and yep i'm coming so off he rides, yeah. and, he, and he dies. It is sad. It makes me start to tear up just thinking about it. It's it's really effective. Yeah, I mean, this guy's good at what he does. I think what, I mean, I don't know what Neil Gaiman, for example, would have done with this, but the thing that I can imagine so many of the authors that I like less and trust less doing with this mm-hmm. is just leaning into the existential sadness in a way that Beagle always just pulls back from. He really does pull back. I mean, Gaiman in Sandman and other things, in any number of places, what he, the kind of thing he does is analogous to if in the last, in the end of the first book, The Last Unicorn, if Prince Lear was just ruined by the unicorn. Right. If he just spent his life searching for her or pining after her. Yeah. And Beagle very much while he wants to have that sadness of you'll never actually get this unattainable thing, mm-hmm. he's more mature and saying, well, but you actually have to move on with your life. Um, yeah, he is. The, well, the other thing is Gaiman, I've read quite a bit of Gaiman back in the day. I think I could, s- tell me if I'm right, Gaiman would also keep you more at arm's length from the characters. Mm-hmm. He would do what you just said 
and leave you with that feeling. But you would also be more at arm's length from Prince Lear as a person. Right. Prince Lear would be have been more of an object in mm-hmm. Gaiman's hand. And Prince Lear is more of a person in Beagle's hands. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. So I just the Gaiman loves the idea that the gods walk among us and they just casually ruin our lives without even Right, and that's his metaphor, that's his analogy for what human life is like. And it's pretty effective when he's firing on all cylinders. Yes, I. there's a moment from Sandman, I remember, where Dream goes walking with his sister Delirium, right. and some cop tries to give them a ticket. Right. And she says, like, I want you to see bugs crawling all over you for the rest of your life. And then the guy is just struck with this horrible <laughs> insanity where he thinks bugs are crawling over him. And Gaiman circles back at the end of that particular omnibus or collection of sandman to say yep officer whoever this random guy who was just doing his job has now been committed to the sanitarium and he's not trying to say that's a good thing it's just his it's his conception of what life life is like life is is cruel and arbitrary and the gods are cruel and when they when we have these experiences they're not necessarily going to be for our betterment or right it could just be that someone ran some random force beyond our control or understanding is against us one day for a completely arbitrary reason and our life is destroyed right uh, he loves that kind of thing at least he, he did in his heyday oh, no, he, I'm, he does. I'm sure he still does but i think he does that was like one of the tricks it was one of the neat tricks about sandman was just that that yeah. nihilism was a, not in a good way but it was, <laughs> it was attractive in its yeah. in a bad way right uh, yeah yeah, it is. And Beagle doesn't really do that. Right. Beagle feels like he has more affection for his characters and understand. He wants you to sort of have the romantic sadness of you can never really have the unicorn, but also. Right. Maybe you can have just enough of the unicorn over here and then yeah. get on with your life over there. And he seems yeah. to favor the more practical characters like Molly Grew, like mm-hmm. Schmendrake. I mean, Schmendrake was interesting. I wasn't quite sure what to make of his ultimate destination uh-huh. like he's waiting for the wizard powers to sort of flow through him yeah and then they do and i'm not sure exactly what made him worthy or why he was able to be the right kind of passive vessel or what the lesson of or moral or i think i took well the lesson i took from schmentrick was that you are just supposed to bumble along and be in the right place at the right time you're just supposed to take the next step that you can even if you are ridiculous. I think I liked him. Yeah. I think, I think I liked I think his arc. I mean, that's the most sense I make out of it anyway. Yeah. It didn't feel unfair to me that he became that. I don't think. No, it always felt like he had, it didn't feel like he suddenly became Gandalf or something. It felt like no. he, he always had a folksy kind of wisdom to him and he was also, he was also bumbling mm-hmm. and the world's worst magician as he's built. Right. But at a certain point, he bumbles along into the right moment and right. becomes a great wizard. Yeah, he does. And it's, it is pretty pointedly a moment of sacrificial love that brings that out of him. I think, yeah, well, definitely on the final occasion. Mm-hmm. So there's, I don't know. I don't, I wonder if our, you think our conversation has been followable for someone who hasn't <laughs> have, read this book? I have no idea. I'm not sure at all. <laughs> Probably, maybe not. Sorry. It's a hard book to, yeah. I, I don't know what else to do about it. I think if we hit stop and tried to record this again, we just have the same, have the same thing, yeah. Or a different, equally confusing conversation. Like, it's a hard book to talk about. Is it? I mean, is it helpful? Maybe we could just reiterate what the unicorn is in the book or what she represents. Yes. So she's, the book starts with her alone in her wood, and she overhears a remark from some hunters that, as far as they know, there are no unicorns left in the world. And she's like, what? Am I the last one, really? I have to find out. 
So she goes to find out, and that's the book. The book mm-hmm. is her quest, but it's yeah, it's also the quest of several other people that come alongside her, like Schmendrick. And at some point, the book, I mean, it's Schmendrick is the main character and not her. It, or Molly. At different times, there's different point of view characters, and it right. kind of weaves in and out. But, but she represents like what's beautiful and transcendent in the world, what's immortal. She's like, she evokes the platonic ideal or something. I don't know how else to talk about her. Yeah, I mean, it's that stupid, like, if you're like, I'm going to have the best Christmas ever and it's going to be magical, then you can't manufacture it. Because the second you try to grasp transcendent (laughs) happiness, it eludes you every single time. Right. This book is like a, wants to be a profound meditation on that. Uh And that is what the unicorn is. And so, yes, she is just everything that's transcendent, everything that's beautiful and everything that that we cannot ultimately grasp. And that is a very gamin-ish kind of thing. Yes. Like she's a personalization of an abstraction. Yeah. She's a character. Oh, what is it that Gene Wolfe said once? I used to know this quote. It's kind of a fun, it's kind of a fun quote, a fun thing. He, I think he was talking about the difference between allegory and myth. Oh, this is the best that I can do, listener. But he said something like, he. I think he was comparing bunyan to norse myth or something i don't mm-hmm. know john bunyan's pilgrim progress so it's like allegory asks the question what if a giant represented despair right whereas myth is like what if despair were a giant right <laughs> right and if you can grasp that distinction then that's kind of what this is it's yes. like it's like what if transcendent beauty were a unicorn mm-hmm. right and so the unicorn is a character in her own right she's not an allegory yeah what's but, interesting about the book is that is true, but it's also true that what's interesting about the book is not the unicorn herself. It's, okay, we have transcendent beauty personified in walking through the world. Now, let's watch what happens when all these different character types encounter her. Mm-hmm. So we have the evil, cynical old king who just wants to hoard transcendent beauty. He doesn't even enjoy it himself. And mm-hmm. We all know that person. right? And we have Schmendrake who kind of has a bumbling... Loyalty, Loyalty, you could say, but also he's hoping that she'll be his ticket to wizard powers. Right, and he doesn't ever maybe quite grasp everything that's great about her. And yeah, and then you have Molly, the woman who's just old and past, kind of used up and past her prime, and she just wants to bask in transcendent beauty, but also understand that it's not really for her, and it's going to move on, and mm-hmm. like she's very pragmatic about it, but also she'll give her life for it. Mm-hmm. And then you have the prince who just falls head over heels in love. and Once the unicorn is transformed into a human girl. Right. And then becomes great. Uh, actually stops being a slouchy nobody and becomes, becomes a hero. Becomes an actual hero, yeah. Um, and the book isn't mocking that. Like it Not wa- at all. It wants to say he did become a hero. No, there's this great line where he's talking to his dad as he first sees the lady Amalthea, if I got her name right coming up with Schmendrick and Molly to the castle. You don't know yet in the book that it's the prince and the king, which is really fun. Yeah, that was They're just the sentries. Yeah. It's great. But he says to his adoptive father, because that's what King Haggard is to him, because he's like, he's already basically falling for Lady Amalthea from a distance. And his dad is annoyed at him or something. And he says, look, I'm sorry I never pleased you, but oh, how I wish I had pleased myself. I wish I'd pleased myself. And what he meant is, I wish I'd 
cared to become a really good man because mm. I just saw someone worth being a good man for. Yeah. And it's pretty sweet. Yeah. And this book has a lot of stuff like that. Um, yeah. So I hope in our rambling, disjointed conversation, you've seen what could be dangerous about this book. If it's if it would be a good book for you, then <laughs> I would recommend it. Read it I, to I, your five-year-olds at bedtime. Ab- absolutely. They need to understand <laughs> that transcendent beauty is unattainable if they, they understand nothing else. Scared out of their socks by a horrible harpy. Yes. Uh, that skull was really funny. I really like that skull. Oh, man. I mean, it does have a handful of my favorite fairy tale kind of fantasy moments I've read in quite some time. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, comparable with the best of somebody like Gene Wolfe. Or- yes, it is. And and the prose, I don't know that you could say enough about how good the writing is. Mm-hmm. It is kind of amazing. It's, I mean, it's right on the edge of something that I would not like and would annoy me. I kept waiting again. I kept waiting for it to fall off the cliff. I'm like, this is going to be too self-satisfied. It's going to be too saccharine one at some metaphor point. It's gonna too be many too, and- one metaphor too many, one simile too many. I mean... Nathan and I were having a conversation the other day about a fantasy book we had read, also not a kid's fantasy book, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Yeah. And how I was saying, in my opinion, the author, though she's a talented writer, just floods you with the same kind of literary technique one too many times. And it's a simile where she says, and suddenly it was as though, it was as though the room had become a sea of black-winged birds flying off into gloom and it's cool the first couple of times but she does it like all the time and it's like stop hitting me over the head with the same thing Mm -hmm. like i get it like i'm tired of being swept into your fairy world this way and this guy does not make that mistake he does not do that i was trying to find this book to find a quote because i thought that would be cool but i it looks like i don't have it i don't have it pulled up i wanted to bring the hard copy a specific quote or just i just wanted yeah i just wanted to read a couple of things like, just to give people a sense, but it's too bad. I don't seem to have it. Yep. I don't gots it. It, it. Almost any line would kind of give you an idea of the guy's prose. He's very, what's that? Is it kinesthesia? He's very much like, I, I mentioned, you, may, you may, might remember, listener, way back in the context, I mentioned that he had uncles who were painters, well-regarded painters. Man, he has, he writes color better than any writer I've read in a long time. Yeah. Like, he writes color in a way that I never could. I don't think that way. I don't see that way. But he's always going to describe things through color in a way that's very effective. And I wish, okay, read a sample. Here, I'm resorting to an Amazon sample. It's kind of sad. That's okay. Yeah. Let me, I'm just going to find, should I just read the first paragraph or something? It's pretty short. Yeah, I wouldn't hurt anything. All right. I don't know if this will really give you the idea or not, but we'll try. The unicorn lived in a lilac wood, and she lived all alone. She was very old, though she did not know it, and she was no longer the careless color of sea foam, but rather the color of snow falling on a moonlit night. But her eyes were still clear and unwearied, and she still moved like a shadow on the sea. And every sentence in the book is going to be like that, but the trick is, like we were saying, he's going to be able to pull it off without making you feel like, oh, I'm sick of this writing. Let's stop doing that. Like, it's overdone. He just doesn't do that. Yeah, that's why I almost, I'm I'm looking at quotes on Goodreads and I'm like, man, if I read any one of these, people might be tempted to think it's exactly the bad version. That's right. Of what we're talking about. It's, part of it though is, he's really funny. Yes. Like, man, there's a lot of, there's a lot of funny stuff in this book. Yeah. There's a lot of silly stuff. The characters are light and likable and 
not like Princess Bride level self parodies, but it all has a light touch. Uh, and he's good with dialogue. He's actually just good across the board in terms of writing. He's really good. Yeah. Yep. Well. Yeah, I mean, it, this isn't an example of just his descriptive powers, but I just I came across this quote, yeah. which gets at something that I like about that I like about all good fantasists, but that I like about him. This is someone talking. Real magic can never be made by offering someone else's liver. You must tear out your own and not expect to get it back. It's got a lot of things like that where <laughs> it's just like that's a good rule, and it feels like there's some moral weight to that. It feels like it's saying something, and I don't know whether it is or not, but it has that kind of good fairy tale. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. Wait, like a bad fairy tale, a bad modern fairy tale. It just feels arbitrary. It's just like, well, if you do this, then this will happen for some reason uh, right. in this world. Right. Peter Beagle has that quality of being able to invest everything with a kind of, you have the feeling like there's magic systems that are well thought out and you understand exactly where, why everything mm-hmm. works the way it does. This is the opposite of that. But you always feel like, there's some order to this universe, even if Beagle right. hasn't told you what it is. You feel like something is powering all this that we get. And so sometimes animals can talk. Sometimes corpses can talk. Sometimes there's different things like that. Right. But it never quite strays into pure abstraction where you're just like, okay, there's. it always feels like there's some emotional logic to things, if not magic system mechanics. Yeah. Anything else to say about The Last Unicorn? I guess not. No, I think that's probably enough. We have tried to describe our experience. People can <laughs> derive from that what they will. Yeah. And we can derive from them money if they go to patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity. Sign up to support this podcast. Until next time. Oh, there's a cat. There's a really funny little exchange with a cat who is unhelpful simply because he's a cat. There's lots of good stuff. Anyway, until next time. We are not always what we seem and hardly ever what we dream. Mm.